Hi, my name is Sam Sheen, and welcome to Captivated Audience, a podcast I co-host with my friend and professional colleague, Mary Lindbergh, where we look at a whole variety of topics related to financial crime and its prevention. You've probably heard the last two episodes of our podcast where we reviewed a detailed opinion issued by the European Banking Authority concerning the types of financial crime risks present in the European Union and the measures that are being proposed to address them. This is part three of that series. In this podcast, we're going to take a look at the EBA's observations concerning the financial crime risks around crowdfunding businesses. And then we're also going to take a look at some of the trends and typologies that have emerged around the types of fraud in the last 12 months. That's enough for me. Let's get into the discussion. Can we talk about a little bit on, you know, risks associated with crowdfunding platforms as well? Because literally, sometimes actually they go quite hand in hand. Yeah, well, you know, the emergence and growth of these types of platforms has led regulators in the EU to be concerned about what they consider to be a lack of harmonized approach on what their AML CFT obligations are and what they actually should be. So there is a separate legal initiative underway. Some of you might be familiar with this, and it's looking at how these entities should be regulated more generally. Added to that, the EBA is recommending that member state regulators undertake a risk assessment of the platforms operating in their jurisdictions to determine how they could be used to facilitate financial crime and to also refer to the provisions that have been included also in the updated risk factor guidelines. I have absolutely nothing wrong with these recommendations. Not so sure, though, about the regional assessment recommendation about platforms, Marie, because aren't they, for the most part, online of course they are. And they're global again. So when you're coming back to, you know, assessing that national risk, you need to, as EBA would say, you need to take a holistic view on this, right? Because you need to open your eyes and look at this in a much, much more broader view, I would say. So who are the sectors do you think are most closely touched by this? Because this wasn't one of these areas where they singled out particular sectors as being more vulnerable when it comes to misuse of crowdfunding platforms. Looking at communities in this case, I would say who are most likely age-wise or demographic in this case to use a crowdfunding platform or using technology for making payments. I'm aware that certain banking institutions consider any crowdfunding platforms to be high risk. And in some cases, they simply won't open accounts for them. And clearly, if an investment firm has a crowdfunding platform, red flags would be up all over the place. So what kind of sectors are actually exposed to crowdfunding risk? Well, of course, I would say that it's the fintech sector in this case, because, I mean, they pop up quite uh, often and, you know, with the speed attached to it, right? The business might be up and running quickly. And also, of course, that attracts a lot of other people, demographics and age groups in this case, that might be more willing to use that kind of technology in this case. It's, you know, it's everything from social engineering, it is to grooming, it's to other type of platforms. And we do know that crowdfunding can absolutely be helped for good purposes, but it's also in this COVID times, it could be used as a, as a fraud in this case to, you know, get money to, I don't know, raise money for COVID victims or whatever kind of, of frauds in this case. And there, there is perhaps a reason why that red flag is waving, you know, in the background. Again, this is the future. So we need to be able to address it more correctly. 
Yeah. So there needs to be that balance, I think, which is something fintechs have promoted, which is being able to put the customer first where there are valid and socially responsible reasons for engaging in fundraising and to ensure those don't get smothered because there's a few bad actors and we all decide that's just the easiest way to approach it. I'm going to now ask you a question about a topic which was close to our heart last year and something which, you know, we've been trying to raise awareness around, and that is tax evasion. So Mm. what does the EBA have to say about that? Well, no surprise here. There are different approaches towards trying to tackle tax evasion across the EU, right? Which is good, I would say, because we need to also, you know, first of all, we need to know what is considered to be a tax crime because... Again, there is differences between the jurisdictions. In this case, we need to understand and to coordinate again with tax authorities and the sharing of relevant information, both for investigation and also for enforcement purposes. We're coming back to, you know, broadening the PPP in this case, I would say, to include tax authorities and, and other law enforcement. So on top of conducting an assessment to better understand which sectors are more vulnerable of being misused for tax evasion, the EBA also reminds people of its report on dividend arbitrage schemes. You remember that Deutsche Bank scheme and the SCB cases, you know, where they had actually put that kind of tax between the different countries and different jurisdictions. Sam, any thoughts on that? I have two thoughts. The first is I'm aware, obviously, in Ireland, they have implemented some measures with their enforcement agencies around SARS and possible tax evasion reporting. But in effect, the way that it works is that financial institutions have to do dual reporting of suspicious activities, both to their FIU, UNGARDA, and to the revenue authority which would be great if they were both on the same system, but they're not. They each use their own system. So it's double the work, internal investigation teams to make those disclosures. So they're absolutely right around divergent approaches. You know, in Ireland, the Central Bank of Ireland does speak closely with the Revenue Authority, and they are familiar with who files, if they filed correctly, and so forth. But that is definitely not reflective of the rest of the EU. What my second point is, is where's the recommendation in relation to the amendment made to the 5 AMLD that said existing KYC would need to be reviewed whenever a tax trigger happened? So there's this glaring black hole here, both in the risk factor guidelines and in this opinion on this very topic. And it's a big deal because it's a real challenge to operationalize. And just as the EBA has noted the divergence in approach that is developed in terms of dealing with AML more generally, sadly, with this opinion, it's still not made clear for regulators how they're expected to assess these new tax triggers or what they should be looking out for in terms of how it's incorporated into compliance frameworks that are used by the firms. And my real concern here is that rather than successfully tackling this form of financial crime, This is just simply going to have the unintended consequence of different member states having to guess how they're supposed to treat tax triggers and what KYC needs to be reviewed. It's It's going to be a dog's breakfast, as they say, all over again. But then again, if the regulators then are confused and the member states are confused, how on earth are the financial institutions then going to be able to put this into practice? I'm desperately hoping for a little, a a little, a small pair of glasses to give us a hand on this one, but it doesn't look like it's coming. Uh, oh, well, we, we talked about, you know, the state of the pandemic and the state of the universe that we are in, in, in at the moment. March 2021, we have had a full year of COVID in this case, and the risks that have, you know, arisen during last year. Let's talk about that. And let's, let's talk about what is in the future, you know, break out your crystal ball, Sam. 
Okay. Well, interestingly, the message here in this opinion was that the last 13 months have clearly shown how risks can suddenly appear uh, that you haven't planned for and what that means in terms of a response. I think the hint here is that both regulators and firms need to have a degree of flexibility in the event an unexpected thing such as a pandemic occurs, right? Because you need to be able to move quickly. Now, that having been said, the people we interviewed in 2020 on this podcast, the least disruptive thing, surprisingly, was getting people to a remote state. Weren't we quite surprised, Marie, about how many people said, yeah, we we got people standing up fairly quickly to work from home, didn't they? Well, they did, yes. And I think that depending also in what jurisdiction you actually work and reside in, it is, of course, different. But there has been a real good adoption, I would say, in order to actually work from home and get that ball rolling. Yeah. And Fintrail did a great study in 2020 looking at people's business continuity plans or their pandemic continuity plans in terms of what does that mean for the rest of your operations? I I think, though, this is being a little bit disingenuous in this opinion regarding the unexpected nature of this activity. My husband is studying for a risk management course, and he showed me a section the other day in his study materials. And it's written that in 2014, that's when this material was written, Marie, for this class. It says, as one of the things for good risk management is that financial institutions need to prepare for possible business disruptions caused by pandemics. And this was written following the SARS outbreak and the avian flu, which you might remember. So in some respects, I don't think that it was an entirely new risk. I just don't think that regulators were signaling when they were visiting firms and checking out their AML systems, they needed to have these type of continuity plans in place. I think that you're right, Sam. But I think that the financial institutions needed to really think and consider in this case is if they have systems in this case for financial crime purposes, monitoring systems, are they easily accessible from from your home or are they actually are they located deep in, in, I don't know, in the cellar somewhere, um, not part of, of your cyber crime, your, sorry, about, not part of your cyber security program at, at the financial institution? Or, or are you able to actually connect to these kind of systems online or via your VPN or whatever solution you're using? So I think that that was actually one of the things that was like, aha, that was an eye opener in this case. But also, I think that some of the regulators, and we spoke to a lot of people in a lot of different jurisdictions during that year, and they came all back and said to us that the regulator's expectation in this this case was clear as, you know, day, because they needed to keep that business going, monitoring needed still to be happening, and fighting those SARS still needed to be done. So I would say that, yeah, even though perhaps we made the shift fairly quickly, I think that there's a lot of good people at the financial institutions also making that happen technology-wise. And do you remember, Marie, for those of you who are a part of my vintage, we used to rent facilities and you'd have these drills whereby you'd have a phone tree and you'd pretend there had been some sort of emergency like an explosion in your building and you'd see how quickly you could have all the managers call all their staff and then could we move everything immediately over to the temporary servers at the temporary building? And how quickly could it be fired up? And that seemed to be far more onerous. Or we had drills around what if two-thirds of the staff came down sick with the avian flu? What would we do then? What would happen? Could we send the work to another office? And it just seems incredible. We put so much time and effort into that and didn't really think about the systems themselves. Agreed. Because, well, first of all, all the instructions were still in a binder back in those days. (laughs) Well, I think 
the EBA opinion is fair in some of the assessment it made, which is it talks about some of the things that came out is exactly what you would expect with any sort of changing environment, which is as a result of the pandemic, we had new crime topologies, such as and the emphasis that they noted on the misuse of government funding and relief programs, fraud in relation to medical product sales, and sort of wrapping their heads around the idea that what did that mean for people's transaction monitoring systems, being able to then detect that activity. But Marie, some of the people we spoke to last year didn't find that terribly problematic and said it still fell into some of the more general sort of buckets of TM rules they already had in place. To some extent, yes, but we also made the conclusion that, you know, assessing that data and also using AI to, to look at that data during that transaction period were going to be quite interesting. So I think that there might be some new lessons learned in, according to this. I think there's a logical recommendation here, which is, look, new stuff started to happen. Criminals started to misuse different products for different things. So the concern is that the control framework of a bank wouldn't be as effective because they're not used to monitoring for these specific types of crimes. Is it really that difficult to pivot, to come up with new rules really quickly? Or, you know, is that just a reality that's difficult to manage in a short period of time? Well, that, again, that comes back to what kind of system you have and the legacy issues that you have and the data, of course. Again, it comes back to the data in this case. So if you have a good access to data and you have all the technology that you need to have in place, then of course your development of new rules and, and also new scenarios will probably be much easier uh, and test it because you might have a sandbox available that you can do all to do the testing in. But then again, if you have a slow process of, of first of all, designing the rule, making sure you have the data, you know, trying the, testing that scenario out, and it needs to go to five or six decision steps before it's actually being implemented, or in worst case, it needs to be sent off to the, the system vendor and let them implement it for you and then go back and test. This has actually shown the absolute need for speed. I'm coming back to the need for speed in order to change those rules quickly, change your scenarios, to understand your data, and to be able to make the changes in the models really quickly to understand you know, that. Otherwise, you will probably be still using the same type of scenarios or typologies within your systems pre-COVID. And to be frank, I am not sure how efficient that would be. So Maria, I undertook an exercise whereby I looked at some of the reporting that had come in around fraud, right? Fraud and subsequent money laundering. Mm. And what's really interesting is that some of the classic fraud stuff was being caught. But I noticed something really interesting, which was the fraudsters who seemed to be successful in not being detected for a period of time, they tended to sell things that kind of made sense during the pandemic. So can I give you a couple of examples? Please. I love a good example. You know that. I noticed there seemed to be a burst in earbuds, like the wireless ones. And when you think that everybody was on Zoom, there seemed mm. to be a disproportionate amount of fraudulent schemes offering either the sale of counterfeit or imaginary earbuds. I also noticed there seemed to be a really big spike in CBD sales. And if you think about it, if you've been not allowed out of the house and you perhaps have dealt with bereavements or other stresses of life or you and the kids and you don't have a lot of space at home, you might be needing some release from that stress. And the third thing I noticed really interestingly was an odd sort of spike in IPTV. Do you know what those are? You're referring to services as? 
as in like you know, being basically being able to hook up your on-demand TV because we're all locked up at home, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. That makes sense, doesn't it? Because as you were saying, earbuds are being frequently used. I'm not sure about the CBD though. Not not familiar <laughs> about that. But you know, there are other stress relievers out there. I mean, somebody do starting to do yoga or whatever. So there might be an increase in yoga mats. I have no idea. But then again, to the IP, definitely because we are now more in charge of our own hours during the day, right? If you have an employer in this case that doesn't really, you know, you need to be on Zoom between 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., you can do your work. Otherwise, yes, of course, you might, I don't know, like watch a daytime TV show. I don't know. But on the bond, definitely. I, I get that. So, yeah. And the thing is, what I have noticed about, you know, fraudsters in this case is that actually the really good ones, they're actually selling a product that might not be working, but, you know, you get the delivery and then you have to go back and claim it. Or if you are, for instance, you are prescribing to something that is, is due to come monthly, you get the first two months and then you just like make a payment for the rest of them and then shipment suddenly stops. So, yes, I think that it has been a very interesting and I think that we are going to be looking back at this period in time in like five years or whatever and just like scratch our heads and say like, oh my God, that was a really clever way to do the fraud. So I think the recommendation from the EBA was basically keep supervising, resume on-site activities when you can, but keep looking for COVID-related financial crime risks and share the information with enforcement and the private sector. I looked at this and went, and let's add to it, let's start working with our fraud teams because we'd actually probably learn a great deal from one another about the trends of how criminals have tried to misuse our products and services during this period, but equally how our clients or our customers have behaved over time and how in certain periods of you know radical change like this, how their consumption behavior is likely to change as well. And that concludes part three of our series on the EBA's opinion concerning financial crime risks facing the European Union. Join us for our final episode where we'll be looking at remote onboarding and yes, the dreaded B word, whether the UK has in fact exposed Europe to greater financial crime risk since Brexit. See you then. <laughs>